Hello and welcome back to RocketPod. My name is Harry Damon and of course I'm joined by James Cuss and producer Peter Haynes. So for today's episode we are sitting down with Joanna Baptista, current Oxford student, founder of two social enterprises and three times TEDx speaker. I think that's enough for introduction, let's get this episode going. Good morning Joe. how you doing? I'm doing okay, Harry, how are you? Yeah, we're all good, we're all good. Um, so could you start us off by maybe giving our audience a quick introduction about yourself? Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Joanna, although most people tend to call me Jo. Um, uh, I'm just turned 19 years old and I've just finished my first year studying economics and management at the University of Oxford. But I guess more importantly, and I guess why I'm here is um, I'm a really passionate social entrepreneur and public speaker. So um, what I love to do is anything and everything that involves promoting gender equality um, and giving uh, people the education they deserve so that they can, no matter who they are, where they're from, achieve their goals and, and dream big mostly. So my um, all my work centers around doing that, whether that be through my social enterprise, which I founded three years ago now, um, where we basically take children's picture books and we rewrite the traditional fairy tale with a modern ending to try and highlight themes such as racism, sexism, and homophobia. Uh, and then also on the flip side, talking, whether that be to schools and giving workshops or whether that be um, going to conferences and speaking to businesses about what they can do. Um, anything that involves sort of that realm is me, but really I just, I love um, to get involved and stuck in anywhere I can. So people always usually tend to call me the, the, the person who does a little bit of everything, but I really enjoy that. No, that's great. So I guess three companies, straight A stars at GCC, multiple awards, two times TEDx, I could go on all before the age of 18. So we wanted to really understand kind of where this drive derived from. So could we go back and could you share a bit of what you were like as a child, maybe what your upbringing was like and were you always this determined? Um, I think I was always this determined but I think your determination can manifest in different ways um, and I think you learn about or for, at least for me what channels me or really got me into what I'm doing at the moment was really finding that that reason why. Um, so I think that I've always been determined. I remember at primary school, I actually used to go into like into the playground and I'd try and sell people my old key rings or like I'd find a key ring on the floor and I'd try to pass it off as this really new, like really nice key ring that everyone needed to have, um, which obviously is slightly unethical, but that's what I really enjoyed doing as a child. And I think that sort of then came into its own when I was older and I found like a real purpose and found what I really cared about. And honestly, that was just through life experiences. I remember that I once volunteered um, at a local primary school uh, in Oxford at one of the most impoverished areas around us. And I was reading to this girl called Maeve um, and she was nine at the time and I was 16. And when I spoke to her, she really, really reminded me of how I was at nine years old, like both in looks and in mannerisms. And I think just knowing that she came um, she was going to school completely different to the brilliant one that I was fortunate enough to go to. Um, and that when she spoke, she was saying, oh, I'd really like to go and do this, but I'm not sure I'll be able to because of this, or I'm not sure I can because of why. Um, and it really made me upset to feel like that she thought that there were barriers at the age of nine, when at nine I was thinking I could be a princess and go like ride off into the sunset. Um, and it really made me think like, something needs to be done here because every child should be able to dream and think that they can achieve things and have the tools to do that. Um, I guess in terms of my upbringing and what that was like, my parents have always been really great at encouraging me to do things. So when I was 12, my mom signed me up to this university level um, entrepreneurship challenge because she knew I really liked that. Um, and my dad used to take me to coding camps and coding classes. Um, and I think that all of that gave me that belief that, so what if I'm 12 and going to an adult business competition or so what if I'm learning these skills that most people my age might not learn? Um, and I think that's what gave me the drive, like going forward. And when like I'm a fairly young person in a fairly adult world, it's that sort of like, so what? Like, who says I can't do it? Um, and I think that was always the belief that I grew up with in school also since my parents um, came to England from Portugal, which is where I was born and studied whilst I was really young um, and really taught me a lot of that, like um, just do it attitude that no one can tell you that you can't. 
from a very young age, you were, you were constantly being just saying, want to go give it a go, just do it. And I think, so you've got a couple of businesses now. So when did you, I guess, find that passion for that tried? So obviously you sold key rings on the playground, like you said. So when was the first sort of spot? I guess there's so many different sparks that we had, but when was the first sort of proper experience of maybe starting a small little business? Um, what did that look like? I think that the most important thing about a business is not necessarily, oh, look, um, I'm a profit-making millionaire, but it's more about um, here's a problem and here's how I can solve it. So I guess that my first, my passion for business really came from the fact that if I see something that I don't like, I will change it. Um, and I think that's an attitude that entrepreneurs have to have of like, it's not enough to just, like, if you see a problem, then you've got to do it and you've got to do it relentlessly until you've solved it. Um, and if you find something that you're passionate about enough, then you will um, keep doing that. Um, so, and then how that comes into my passion for business and, and the drive to change. I think that, it, as I said, like, it would sell key rings in the playground, but even before that, I'm a terrible artist, right? I can draw a stick man. But age six, I'd like ask my aunt if she would for 50p buy my um buy my drawing and all of those were like really small things um the first real business experience i had properly was when i went to that business competition age 12 for adults that my mum signed me up to um and i did it just because um it was over the weekend and i was kind of bored and i thought well i really like this so i should give it a go um and uh we ended up winning which i think no one quite expected for um a 12 year old an 11 year old and two university students who were helping us out and the prize for that was um, the chance to pitch to real investors. So I guess that threw me right in at the deep end of like, cool, like you've had this idea. Um, now, now do it. Um, and I think that's my real first business experience of like actually not only doing these small selling things in the playgrounds or raising money for charity at a fair, which are all super valuable experiences to have. Um, but that was the moment I was like, OK, the business world is real. Like, let's do something cool. Because, yeah, I mean, you mentioned how kind of it's not about making money, it's about kind of making a change, actually. So you've described yourself as a social entrepreneur. What, can you share with the audience kind of what that really means um, and what kind of drew you to that path? Yeah, sure. So obviously in all of the experiences, well, in lots of the business experiences that I've described so far, it's been about, oh, like selling queues, I want to make money so I can buy new ice cream. Um, and then as I got older, I realised that, the problems that I wanted to change in the world stopped being, I want to go buy a lolly and I've seen this injustice. I want to figure out a way to solve it. Um, and to be a social entrepreneur means to have an entrepreneurial way of thinking that helps benefit a party other than yourself, I guess, is the way that I would describe it. And I'm sure there's better like actual definitions. But this is my this is the way that I describe it. So um, I'm doing something that involves entrepreneurship. So I'm starting a business. I'm fundraising for this. I'm figuring out the solution to the problem with that. And I'm doing it not only for myself, but also for others. And it can be in whatever you're passionate about. It could be for the for environmental causes. It could be like I do for gender equality and um, especially intersectional um, equality and looking at some of the other inequalities that we face. Um, or it could be, um, I don't know, for the health system, it could be for any cause that you care about and you have taken action to, to solve that. And usually, I guess, social entrepreneurships differ from charity or fundraising in the sense that the activity you're doing directly relates to the cause that you support. So in my case, creating books. I did that because I wanted to do a combination of educating people at a young age about equality, but also then that what you what you're creating is a positive change so it's not about oh, I've I've run a marathon and now I'm donating this money to the cause it is actively working to change it um in what you in what you're doing I'd say I was going to say have you been familiar with um the author Muhammad Yunus uh, I'm not actually but do tell me more. <laughs> okay so I would I would love to send you that book I, there's a book called Social Business by Muhammad Yunus um and actually he was an economics professor in the 70s um in Bangladesh and there was uh, they had terrible famine at the time, and I think there was a civil war. And he was kind of moved out of his professorship role to help the people. Um, and it was, I'll just give you an example. So it was during that time when he found that there was 27 people that were indebted by loan sharks. And these, these individuals were very poor, and they would never, ever get out of the cycle of debt. Um, and he basically settled, he unchained all of these people for $42. 
um, such a small amount of money. And these loan sharks would basically set the price that they bought the goods that the people made. Um, and he started Germain Bank. Um, and actually, 98% of the microloans that he lends are to women. Um, and he's just built this amazing social business. And actually, he's, he's coined, you know, it's a social entrepreneurship. It's, it's, it, he talks about that in his book. But anyway, it's a really good one. And I'd love to, get, love to send it to you because I think it will give you, because I'm, I'm really, I'm very interested in social, in social business. Um, and I, I guess the purpose is, is to create jobs and you just keep putting the money back into creating jobs. I think you can get back the money you put in, but it's, it's a very, it's a very noble thing to do. Um, and it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. So very, uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I didn't remember his name, but actually funnily enough in my a-level i learned so much about about microloans and how they started in Grammy bank um in india especially i think it is especially interesting that something so small can make a big difference and i think that's testament to just the idea that people often think oh like what can i actually do that's actually going to make a difference and you know what small things catalyze and into bigger things but no that's great um thank you for mentioning yeah i mean a lot of what you said just before about all the stuff you're working on aligns actually quite well with like all the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and which I've heard you speak about quite a lot before. I guess, would you be able to maybe share with the audience a bit more about these goals, kind of what are they, um, why they're so important and why people and businesses need to work towards these? Sure. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals first came in at the turn of this at the turn of the century, millennia, at the turn of the millennium um, in 2000 as 15 key goals that the world wanted to achieve by the time they hit 2015. Um, and then 2015 rolls around and they realized that a lot of these goals they'd made huge improvements on, but there was still a lot to be done. And so the current UN Sustainable Development Goals that you'll see are 17 goals to be achieved by 2030 that build on the original goals. Um, my particular favorites are goals four, five, and 10. So that's quality education, gender equality, and reduced inequalities. Um, and I guess the usefulness of the sustainable development goals is that they give you a really easy framework to point out some of the key problems that we face and then decide now how can we, how can we tackle these. Um, millions and millions of people all over the world are working towards these same goals. There'll be the same people, in completely different countries, in the global south, in Africa, in Asia, in Australasia, who are fighting for the same goals, and they will do it in different ways because different things are needed in different places. But it's the idea that we're all united towards towards the same mission. So I'm really passionate about them because these are goals that relate to everyone all over the world. There's huge diversity and huge intersectionality between these different goals. And I think they're really useful for people and businesses because it allows you to communicate like this is what I care about um, and you can it's almost like a conversation like oh Harry like I'm goal five and ten what goal are you um, and it doesn't really matter the idea is that um, it's a really simple way of describing your cause and I think a lot of the problem that we face is like what's your why um, and I think that this really helps people and businesses to find their why find their greater purpose and just profit um, and then figure out how how to apply them so that's why I think they're, they're particularly great is there enough companies people working towards these to hit this 2030 goal um i think at the moment well whether we hit the 2030 goal or not is a different question to people and businesses i think that if we hit the 2030 goal it's because of the huge work of charities and individuals and ngos and the un and governments who are doing their bit to try and alleviate this but it's really up to businesses and the people and us in our daily interactions to make sure that we're contributing to these goals and i don't think that we're doing enough but i think we're moving in the right direction and i think the phrase that's most important to this is vote with your pound so i think that there are for example the, the scandals at the moment with boohoo paying like three pounds an hour for their workers why don't you just not spend money on boohoo clothes and spend money on sustainable and ethical brands that might cost the same or slightly more and if you if you're voting with your money, then people will realize that they can't carry on because their business model is no longer sustainable the way it is. And then they'll be forced to change. And this is another one of those examples of really small actions that we can all take that cost us literally nothing or maybe an extra 50p per item we buy and can all together make a big difference. So there's not enough being done, but we are moving that way.
I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk, that's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. Really, that's really interesting. It's it's funny on the on the subject of the businesses doing more. So I last night I couldn't sleep. I was up between one and three this morning. And don't ask me why. And I went through. Um, I I make notes every day, and I went through a, a notepad that was like eighteen months old. And one of the goals that I set myself was to find one hundred companies in the next ten years that could each pledge one percent of their turnover towards. Uh, towards you know social initiatives um or you know esg initiatives and um it's funny because i reached i reached the goal so one of the goals was just one company <laughs> to start with and i i started the, i've just um my fintech business we've written into the company articles that the board has the discretion to spend up to one percent of its turnover towards esg initiatives so it's all, all very well to, to tell people you, you're doing it but to actually l- write them into the legal framework of the business because I think if you do more for society, um, it's going to come back. And you don't do it to get back, but it's just because it's the right thing to do. And I, I do think there's a shift towards that direction. Um, but having, having the purpose, I like the way that, you know, you, the way you talked about the, um, the UN goals. You know, you, you know which ones are yours. And there's going to be, you know, uh, cohorts of people around the world that are your tribe. So, you know, and with technology, we can all communicate and we can get more done. So it's quite exciting. So I, I love um, I love your approach to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's also a bit about when you're saying like the difference between legal or giving 1% or, or like doing something, but it's not to give back. It's almost like it's really hard for people to care until they feel like it relates to themselves. So if you've personally been affected by the pandemic, you're much more likely to want to stay inside because you've seen the effects. And sometimes the problem that we have is that we disassociate with some of the problems going on in the world. So I think bringing that back or bringing awareness or giving because it's part of the legal framework, not expecting to give back, really helps change that narrative of you don't need to have lived through something to care about it. Um, and I think that's the direction that we're moving in as well. Mm. Yeah, our companies will the startup trying to do it to, to look they don't actually have the passion behind it to do it they're doing it to make themselves look good um which i think is interesting you mentioned a second about the kind of the pandemic and obviously everything we're currently going through i guess it's a huge time for reflection and that sort of thing so do you think you've kind of had the time to kind of pause and maybe reflect on the wealth experience opportunities that you've had in the past or the stuff that you've managed to achieve already because i guess it's a moment of time where we can all look back and really reflect on what we've had, um, the freedom, all that sort of thing. You got a comment on that? Yeah, I think that actually the start of lockdown was quite tough for me because it came, well, it was very tough for everyone. It came very suddenly. It came right at the end of term. So I had the rest of my university um, cut short. Uh, I had, I moved back home from university and I love my family and I was still able to finish and I'm in the super fortunate position that no one I know has has suffered too much as a result of the pandemic. But I think what it really makes you, what it really made me do is realise that I was living constantly for these things that were happening in the future. Like, oh, I can't wait to go back to uni in five weeks. And I can't wait to go and see Camilla Cabello in concert in June, which I didn't get to do. Or I can't wait to, to do this or to experience that. And then suddenly you're in a situation where you can't, you can't do anything. And not only can you not do anything, but you don't know what you can look forward to. And and I think that was something that I really struggled with. Um, And it made me reflect on not only, I guess, what I'm doing at the moment and what I've done in the past, but how I want to approach my thoughts and my character in the future. And I think that maybe the reason why I couldn't reflect so much on what I've done in the past is because I don't have a very good system of reflection. Um, And I think that that's a really important 
important lesson to learn and something that I've learned. So this year, at the beginning of the year, I started writing gratitude logs of things I was grateful for. And now since the pandemic, something that I've been really working on is recognizing and celebrating the path so far and then reflecting positively on the path going forward, but with goals that don't depend on a certain deadline or date. So instead of saying, I'm really excited to go for this conference in three months time where I'm going to learn this and then be able to approach this person to make this business happen. I'm thinking in five years time, I really hope that I've been able to influence these people. I hope that in myself, I've grown as a person and I've learned lessons. And I hope that I've kept and made friends and family relations that are constructive and positive moving forward. And some of those milestones might look like starting this business, which I'll do when I can. Um, and looking at things in a different way, which isn't so dependent on here's what's next, here's what's next. And instead saying, here's what here's what's happened and here's where I want to be. And now let's just go with the flow and see how we get there. And I think that's something that lockdown's really taught me. Yeah, so that, that seems to be, I mean, just looking at your impressive background, um, you, you seem to be a very goal-oriented individual. So actually focus on the journey or the process as, fo- as opposed to the, the goal or the objective. Uh, is that, that's kind of what you're, that, that's kind of the realization that you've come to. Is that, is that right? It's more about the process or the journey than actually having these goals in the future. Is it actually celebrating the moment and being more mindful in, you know, not putting, kind of taking, letting yourself off the hook a little bit um, for the, the things that you can't control, maybe is that? Yeah, I think it's. Can you elaborate, elaborate on I that? I think it's somewhere in between. As I think you're right in saying that I am a very like goal oriented person, and I think that's because if I have goals, then I have specific, It's easy to find specific metrics of success. So if I say I achieved this thing, then I'm like, oh, I know that I've succeeded. And I think the important thing is to recognize success in other areas and to recognize success in journey and not only in milestones. And that's a harder success to recognize because it, it requires introspection and it requires something that isn't numerical. It's thinking qualitatively about your impact and reevaluating where you want to go. And I think that this lockdown helps us realize that we might have slowed down in our ability to hit milestones that we've set ourselves based on a growth trajectory and hit those goals but instead what we've done is that we've been forced to reflect and introspect on what we're doing and why we're doing it and then it means that we've come out of this almost difficult time where we're not on the same path to maybe we're going to pursue a new path and actually in five years time we face this uncomfortable stagnant position but it means that we now know exactly what we're doing and we can go much faster in the future and I think that that is the difference between a successful person who can achieve goals and achieve KPIs and someone who is not only successful in the current realm, but almost redefines a new realm and therefore can be even more successful because they see beyond their immediate path. That's brilliant. That's a really nice way of um, describing it. Very eloquent. I like it. <laughs> um, I have a question for you. So what, what did coding do for you? So how did how did the code your first coding course what did, what did that teach you and how did that did that impact your trajectory? I think anyway? that coding helped me twofold. I'd say the first is that it gave me an extremely valuable skill that is not taught enough and is not known extensively enough, especially in women and girls. Um, so I think that what coding taught me firstly was giving me an asset that is extremely valuable, especially in the modern day. And it also taught me that I can create my own solutions to anything. I think that, you know, maths, you're taught how to solve problems. And you solve the problem that you're set, you'll say, oh, find whatever, you find it, fine. What coding does is it says, do whatever you like. Like, here are the, here's the language that you require. Here are the tools that you need. Now you can go and do anything. And I think that's a kind of a, a mindset that is really reflected in entrepreneurship as well. It's the sort of thing, like, here are the tools that you need to do whatever it is that you want to do. And I think coding is a lot about that. And coding also teaches a lot about patience because sometimes you'll have a missing colon somewhere in the middle of hundreds of lines of text and it will take patience and looking in detail and thinking critically and also taking a step back and then going back in to discover that the only problem you had was you had a missing colon. Um, And I think there's something really humbling about that um, in lines of code that even the best developer can can miss a colon. Um, so I think there are lots of benefits of coding 
especially right now. And those are kind of the lessons that it taught me, I'd say. Do you enjoy that sort of challenge when you can't find that colon? Is that something that you, if you have moments you're like, oh, I'll give up? And no, you, you enjoy that kind of challenge. Absolutely. I think that everyone hates that challenge until they've solved that challenge. It's the kind of thing that when you have that problem, you are like, I am so angry. I'm infuriated. I can't find what's wrong. You know, I'm about to cry. I cried so many times creating my project, cried so many times. What happens is you then go away, you do something completely different for a day, maybe two, you come back and maybe you can't do it that time either. But when you finally do it, oh my gosh, the tears of sadness turn into tears of joy and you're ready to do a happy dance across the room because there is a huge satisfaction in solving a problem that you thought was impossible and turned out to be like just like underneath your nose. Um, and sometimes these problems are really difficult and sometimes it's easy, but it doesn't matter because you've achieved something that you thought that you couldn't. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's one of those, one of those um, roller coasters of a ride that is really worth it, even though you hate it during it. So I have a question, another question for you. So what do you think is the, the best decision you've ever made? Gosh, that's, that's a really difficult question. I think that if I paused to think about it more, I'd come up with a different answer. But if I had to think intuitively over the best decision I ever made, I think it's maybe less about um, a one-off, like I did this or I did that. And I think it's more about having a belief in myself that, um, or, or believing in myself that if other people tell me I can't do something, it doesn't mean that I can't do it. Um, and I think the best decision I ever made was having belief in myself and in my ability and finding the people who would help me, help me achieve those things and finding my tribe. Um, and I think that manifests, for example, in at least in secondary school, I think there was a phase between like year 10 to year 12, where a lot of people would make fun of me. Um, not in a mean way, like, oh my gosh, like her hair is so greasy today, but in like, a, oh, like she's posting about this award or she's in London and oh, she's such a show off. And oh, why does she think that she's way better than us? Um, and I think that that can be hard at first because you don't understand why people are picking you apart over something that you think that you're doing well, or you don't understand. And I think that what I learned over that time is almost my favorite quote, which is not applicable in every situation, but the more hate you receive, it's because you're the more successful you are. Um, and it, sometimes it's wrong because if you're being a really horrible person, you'll receive more hate. It doesn't mean that you're doing a good thing, but by numbers, if you're more successful and you've reached more people, then you'll also find that 1%, the 1% will be a bigger number of people hating on you. And I think that it's the ability to recognize when hate is founded on justified merits. You've done something wrong, here's how you can improve it. And a difference then in what I think is the most valuable decision I made, and that was to learn that sometimes people will just say nasty things and you just need to get over it. It's a mindset. So your decision is really just make just make a decision that you're just going to ignore that stuff. Um, and if someone says you can't do it, then well, that's their opinion, and you're, you're just going to do it anyway. Absolutely. That's, that's a great message. That's, I like it. it. It's amazing actually how having the right mindset it just makes everything else so much easier. You know, you focus on the the solution and not the problem. You know, I ride a motorbike and I know that if you if you look at the pothole, I can guarantee you're going to hit it every single time. But if you look at the gap, you know, and certainly when something happens, you know, you can't look at the dangers. You've got to look at the gaps. Otherwise, you know, you're going to, it's not good. <laughs> not a good outcome. You mentioned um, earlier about the metrics of success and kind of I'd be interested to understand what what is your definition of success to yourself? What What is it? I think my definition of success is maybe one that I think that people often say succession depend on other people. But for me, my metric of success is, is twofold. It's firstly that my children or grandchildren will be proud to say, my mum is, is Joanna. And you know, she did this really cool thing. And to know that my family and friends are like proud in, in me and to know me and will, will want to be like, oh my gosh, yeah, she's so cool. This is, this is my mum. And then twofold success for me is knowing that I have left the world in a better place to the way that I found it. And I know that I've done everything that is in my power to change things that I am not happy with. And if I've seen a problem 
and I haven't been able to solve it, but I've tried, then that's success for me because I know that I've at least recognized something that was wrong. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's what success is to me. It's a great definition. You mentioned like everything in your power. So I guess all the stuff you're trying to work with, all different companies, the movements you're doing. So what do you think kind of needs to change to make these academic sciences STEM more inclusive for everybody? What, 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 what is the things that you're working to changing? What sort of things? Yeah, I think there are two parts of this problem. First is the numbers and secondly is the attitudes. So firstly, you need the women and the minorities of all kinds to be in those positions. So first, you need to have numbers of women in STEM. You need to have numbers of ethnic minorities in STEM. You need to have numbers of people from different religious, socioeconomic backgrounds, of different sexualities and orientations. You need to have those people there. Then once they're there, or actually this should be before they're there, but in reality, it's much harder to do it this way. So we tend to get the numbers in and then we think, now let's change the beliefs. And that's saying they're here, but are they welcome here? So for example, this year, Oxford University marks the centenary of women actually being able to officially get recognized with a degree. Brilliant, women are there, but in those first years, women might've been there, but were they welcome there? Were they treated the same way? Did they receive the same level of education and attitudes. And I think we're seeing that now with the Black Lives Matter movement at Oxford. This year they published, oh, 20% of our students are from black and ethnic minorities. So they're getting there in numbers, but are they treated with the same attitude? Probably not if there's still a statue of Cecil Rhodes up. Probably not if we're still, um, if Oxford is still funding racist initiatives. Um, so I think that firstly is getting the numbers there. And secondly, it's changing the attitudes once they're there that's brilliant and what can people like people that aren't maybe making part of this movement do to start contributing i think that's um again the first step that anyone can take if they're not doing enough is to recognize that they're not doing enough and i think this is the first hurdle that so many people fall at is this fragility of i don't want to admit that i'm doing wrong if we're willing to to admit that we made our coffee too bitter because we didn't add enough milk or sugar then we should be able to admit that something we said or an attitude that we hold is not constructive or inclusive to everyone um, and i think that's the first step that so many people fail at is a recognition of wrongdoing it doesn't mean that you're a bad person in fact it only makes you a bad person if you do not recognize that what you've done is wrong so if you if you recognize that something was unproductive or unjust recognizing that is the first step Secondly, it's educating yourself on what's right. So I may, I said a comment that was not acceptable. Okay, why wasn't it acceptable? Well, actually, if I've made a racist comment, let, let me learn about the racist history and the colonial history that Oxford has, that England has. Now let me educate myself on the suffering that people have received and how it's different. And then after I've admitted my wrongdoing, I have learned about that wrongdoing, I can then work on constructive paths to go forward. And I think that's applicable in anything. It's the same way that if, you suddenly realize that you're making a loss in your business. First, you admit, I'm making a loss. I'm not making profit. You don't hide it in the figures. Then you go to jail. <laughs> and, then, and as long as you, you've admitted that you're in the loss, you then say, why am I in the loss? Is it because I'm not selling enough? Is it because my costs are too high? What is it? And then thirdly, you say, okay, now I know why. I know that I am. Now here's how I can go forward. That's really interesting. In fact, the George Floyd... Um the Black Lives, yeah, his tragic death, um, it really kind of hit me out of left field because um, I think for me, it was just being ignorant um, because I've, you know, I do have a very positive can-do attitude and it doesn't matter who you are. And I, you know, I, but it, I think it's the, the residual knowledge or that, you know, as we're raised and in society that it does, you know, it, it is there. So you can't, and, and I, I felt like I was kind of, even though I, I'm not racist at all, um, it, I was in denial that there was ever an issue. Um, and actually, I'm, um, I'm actually a, a, a director of, a, of the East Africa College of Technology. So we're training up electricians in Somaliland. Um, and my business partner, Hassan, Hassan Rashid, um, I actually had to have a, a, a talk with him because I had to, I, you know, I, I didn't know it was making me feel very, um, yeah, just it. I was being mindful about things for the first time um, and I felt guilty about it because maybe I'd missed something. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, um, it's great. It's out in the open and the more it's exposed, the more we can talk about it. The Black Lives Matter, you know, it's, um, it's really healthy and we can find solutions.
No, I totally agree. I think I was the same. I think I've always been really proud in my belief that I think that everyone deserves right, no matter who they are, where they're from, no matter their background, like it doesn't matter. But then I think that it also hit me a bit out of left field because although I and myself made sure to not be racist and if someone was racist, I would call them out on their actions. That's different to me fundamentally understanding the hundreds of years of history um, and the severity of the impact and to not only not be racist myself, but to make sure that I'm actively campaigning as an ally to those people to make sure that systematically and systemically racism isn't present and I think that that's something that hit me at first and I was a bit fragile at first I was like no no I'm not racist and then it's like you know what like that's that's not the that's not the question here it's not whether you've said something racist it's the system is this way what are we going to do about it and I so agree with you it's about just the transparency and and learning more about it that is um that kind of really needs to to come forward in in everything and more prevalently so sort of education around it sort of thing is being able to understand the history and actually understand why all of this is happening. Interesting. I'd actually like to ask what is your, so currently studying at University of Oxford and I wanted to understand where, what does the future hold for you? What plans have you got? I mean, we're not looking ahead with in the moment now, but like, as in, have you got any plans for the future? <laughs> I think that I would like to get a degree. And <laughs> once I finish my degree, <laughs> Good <laughs> after that I would really like to work in management consulting in the city I think that it's an incredibly humbling experience it's very tough hours it's a lot of work it's very tiring but you learn a lot um, and I said I'd like to go and work in that for, for a number of years to really to really learn my craft and then I would like to leave that um, and start like I guess well I've already got a, you know I've got my business I've got my social enterprise but I'm sure that in five or ten years time there'll be a, a new cause or a more developed cause I'm super passionate about. So I'd like to leave at that point and apply what I've learned into an enterprise. And I guess that no matter what the most important overriding thing for me in the future is that I'm taking a path and I am doing things that I believe in. I'm sticking to my values and my morals and I am maintaining healthy, good relationships and benefiting others as well as myself. I think your comment earlier as far as, you know, um, your life's mission to leave the world in a better place than you found it. I mean, I, I share that. I think it's it's a really, it's a great, admirable goal. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And I think it's such an easy one and something that we can all do. Like your life's mission doesn't need to be to become the CEO of UNICEF to be able to leave the world in a better place to how you found it. It can be simply changing one person's attitude towards this or planting five extra trees than you use um, in your toilet roll. Um, and there are so many simple ways that we can leave the world in a better place than we found it. And I think it's more just this constructive belief that the world isn't yours. It's for the future people coming after you and to make sure that you are caring about them and making sure that they can have the best chance. And that can manifest in, in a number of really easy ways. Yeah, that's excellent. Peter, do you have um, a question for Joe? Because Peter normally has some pretty... And no pressure, Peter, but uh, Pete, Peter's always quite in the background there. So we always like to have a question from Peter. Uh, I've been writing a few <laughs> notes. Um, I love what you said about coding and that kind of trial and tribulation between missing one small thing and then finding it and then just standing up on your desk, just like, yes, I've done it. Uh, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, yeah, a lot. Um, I guess I just want to ask about some of like resources that you might be able to share with the audience. Um, obviously you've been, you've done Ted talks yourself and that's kind of, once you get into that world of watching Ted talks or listening to it, it's there's probably never ending content there, but is there kind of any podcast newsletters or YouTube channels that you'd want to share with anyone or just with us? Yeah. So, um, my favorite podcast is future leaders. You're no, you're my favorite podcast. <laughs> my favorite other podcast that you we, may we want to say that it's <laughs> called future leaders. Um, and it's great because it talks to some of the top CEOs about, um, them and their journeys um, and a lot of their failures. And I find their failures the best thing to listen to, not because I want them to fail, but because I know that they're super successful. Um, and I think that it's really jarring to think that, oh my gosh, I got a B in an exam and here I am crying over it when these people have literally been through the ringer and have still come out with a really successful company. So if they can, then I can too. Uh, and then in terms of other resources, um, 
listen to my TED talk, guys. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I think that um, the most important thing is not necessarily a resource that I'd like to share, but a practice. And that is to every day write down um, something that you're grateful for, some, a negative practice that you will let go of, and a positive practice that you want to try and implement. And then my favorite thing is also to create like a vision board of achievements that I want to achieve by the end of the year or in general. So something on that list was that I wanted to, to get my Spanish qualification or that I wanted to drink more water. Uh, it can be big goals. Like one of the ones on my goal was to get on The Apprentice um, or do all these sorts of things. And these goals, uh, I think if you write them out and you're courageous enough to have them on your wall and to tell everyone like these are my goals, then they're much more likely to happen. So that's a practice. And then if people really want to improve on this sort of um, people want to learn more about that last half of our discussion on gender equality and um, in general inequalities in society, then I'd really recommend listening to um, We Should All Be Feminists, the TED Talk, um, and then also to get the um, white fragility and 90 days towards um, becoming to um, becoming a better white ally um, and that's a resource on the internet i will share the links so you guys can include it in the podcast notes but it's basically like a month-long journey to reflect on your own racism or lack of it i guess um, and i think that that's a really important resource so um that ted talk um, and that um that workbook to develop your own personal selves the practice of a mood board like a, a goal board and gratitude and negative and positive habits and then to listen to future leaders podcast i think great yeah some really great resources in there do you have a kind of guilty pleasure podcast or <laughs> tv program that you want to i actually it doesn't have to be all highbrow we can go kind of to the bottom i have two guilty pleasure podcasts the first one might not appeal to your audience when it's called the girls bathroom and it's a podcast of these two youtubers who literally talk about like girl problems or boy problems <laughs> and that is just brilliant and very low low brow like very chill and then my other guilty pleasure podcast that i'll listen whenever i'm working is crime junkie i love <laughs> murder i don't love murder i love murder mystery. i love listening about and like trying in my head to solve like the cause of the crime um, before it. I think um, it's so interesting and also that's learning about loads of like really important important history and facts as well which can be really applicable in everyday life as well so those are my two guilty pleasure podcasts. So actually it's a little bit off a tangent so you've obviously done a lot of TED talks and that and one subject that a lot of people may be quite interested to hear about is the kind of bit about public speaking. Now I mean you've done TED talks to 6,000 people in Amsterdam, but to, public speaking is a big fear in anybody of all ages, whether it be in an interview, speaking to friends, anything. So could you maybe share a bit of your experiences and maybe some tips and techniques of how to overcome that fear? Um, and yeah, and just delve into that really. Okay, so the first thing I'm gonna say is that you're, if you're 30 and you're still afraid of public speaking, then it's gonna be harder for you. Um, and that's an uncomfortable truth, but. I would say to anyone who's listening to this, who has younger siblings, is young themselves, who has children, is start when start as young as possible because when you're younger, you have less fears. So I think part of the reason why I'm comfortable with public speaking is because, for example, at 12, I won that competition and I was forced to pitch to investors. So that's like right at the deep end in terms of public speaking experiences. And I think that the younger you start and the more experience you have, so speak to yourself in the mirror for five minutes, volunteer to speak in class, the more you do that, the more comfortable it becomes. Um, so that's in terms of practice. And I think the other big lesson for me in public speaking um, is that everyone wants you to do well. No one is sat in that audience thinking, I want them to trip over their head and not be able to, to speak. Um, so I think that it's that. And then not thinking of, the audience as individual people but just as like just as a room so I actually find it more nerve-wracking to speak to to speak to someone I know or to have been an audience and to individually know people in that audience because I know that if I fail those people are going to know that I failed because they're in my life I've spoken to them often they might know the speech that I'm preparing whereas if I don't know anyone in that room I actually find it easier because I and I think this is something that people can take is like if you don't know them, they're never going to have any impact on your life if you mess up. If you get it wrong, the only person who's going to know that they've gotten it wrong is you. 
Um, and even if you get it wrong, they're not going to come like around stampeding saying you're a horrible person because you messed up. Um, they're probably never going to see you again, talk to you again. And if they do, it's probably because they're going to say you did a really great job there. Um, and so I think taking that message of the fact that it is okay if it goes wrong, it's not the end of the world, it'll be fine. And lowering that barrier of like the fact that it has to be perfect. No one does anything perfect first time, no one. Um, but you expect in public speaking that you have to be great first time and you won't be. So start young, get as much practicing as you can. And also just recognize that those people in, those, in that audience want you to do well. And if you don't do well, might never see you again. And so therefore it's fine. No one's going to know that you've yeah. messed up. Yeah, I think that's where most of the fear kind of derives from is what are the audience thinking? And I think that's one of those worries that really when you get up on stage and like you say it doesn't have to be perfect but they're there they, they're there for a reason to to hear you they don't they're not going to be like you're rubbish they're, they're there to support you and they want you to do well and i think that's like you say it's one of those fears that you have to overcome to to get going with it it's great thoughts yeah and it's like it is an uncomfortable fear and with every fear comes this attitude of i can't but i can't of course you can and actually i'd say if you say that you can't then you can't like end the story because you believe that you can't um and i think that the same way that with my comfort zones i don't want to push them because i'm afraid of what comes beyond them but i will never grow as a person if i do not go into those uncomfortable places and i think it's like that with public speaking and if you're really afraid try doing something joint why don't you just change the slides for someone else's presentation or why don't you practice it 500 times in front of five friends and then you know that you know it back to front forwards and backwards um, and just reduce that cost of public speaking like keep it low low risk um, and then build it up excellent really good advice maybe i'll come to you when i'm so i have a question for you so uh if you were to take anyone out for coffee um anyone anyone um who would it who would it be there's so many people that i would love to take out for coffee so i'm going to start by defining my boundaries as someone who is alive um and someone who um I, there are so many people that i'd like to take but personally i would love to take an inspirational woman uh, just because i think that i can relate more personally to experiences i guess that i absolutely love michelle obama but I think she's a very cliche answer to give, but I love Michelle. I think she's incredibly kind and humble. She's very clever, but she's also very understated. She doesn't beg you to say that you think that she's a great person. She, she knows in herself that she is worthy of respect and that she is clever and talented and does great things. And because she knows that in herself, she doesn't feel like she needs a validation from others. And it, it almost makes her even more respectable because, um, she has that confidence in herself that I think everyone should be able to mirror. I also have like a bit of a guilty passion for Karen Brady. I love Karen Brady. I especially love like the segment in um, the Apprentice You're Fired episodes where they do Karen Brady harsh but fair comments because I think that she is just excellent at cutting straight to the point. She will not mess around with you. She will tell you how she thinks. And I love that she's really unafraid of just like speaking her mind. And I think she's also a really amazing businesswoman. So those are two of um, two of the people who I would love to speak to. Yeah, who are alive and who are inspirational women. But there are so many. I would take so many people for a coffee if I could. So you're going to be on The Apprentice then? Oh, I really hope so. Well, I don't know. Everyone says, oh my gosh. But the people who go on The Apprentice are like, are not that, are not that super entrepreneurial or bright but i think it's just i've literally watched every single season since it yeah. came out so it's almost like i just want to be on because i just want to sit in those chairs and have that experience and i don't want to win yeah <laughs> but i just you want you're going to uh, do the kids version weren't you but then the year you were going to enter it stopped it stopped yeah it literally, i was like come <laughs> on no sugar what are you playing at <laughs> this is my chance i guess one final thing for me actually um so could you summarize everything can you bring down to one piece of advice that you'd leave our audience i think if i had to give people one piece of advice or if i was to give anyone advice whether it's my friend or my family i would say find your cause and don't let anyone tell you otherwise that you can or cannot do something that goes to that cause 
And I think that because firstly, if you find your why and you really believe in it, then you in your own right will not give up because you know that you care about this more than you care about a comment that someone makes. And then the second one in that is not only believing in your cause, but believing in yourself that you have the ability to make a change. And I think that comes down to maybe it's experience. The more you do something, the more you think that you can do it. And also that other people are only as human as you. So if they can tell you that you can't, why can't you tell yourself that you can? Um, and who are they to say, they don't know you, who are they to say what you can and can't do? Um, and I think that the best revenge for someone telling you that you can't do something is to turn around, do it twice as good and say, sorry, what did you say? Um, and I think almost that gives me more fuel because I'm like, okay, so they said that I would not be able to do that TED talk. Actually, my school almost did not let me go to Rome to do my TED talk because they said that I had, uh, I only had 65% attendance over the year because I was away talking so much. And they said, you are not going to get the grades in your A-levels to go to Oxford if you go to this talk because it was like three weeks with A-levels. So what did I do? I went to TED talk. Then I got even better grades than they predicted me. And then I went to Oxford and did things better. And I think that that's the best way. It's like, it's fuel for fire. Take those negativity Brilliant. and say, I'm just going to do even better now that you've told me that and do it because you care about something. Wow. Energy. Very good. <laughs> I think that's a, that's yeah. a really good place. That's, that's a really good place to leave it. <laughs> that's brilliant. And one final thing, actually, can you, for people listening that want to follow your journey? Absolutely. So on Twitter, I am Joanna D. Baptista. On LinkedIn, I'm Joanna Baptista. Um, and my website is joannabaptista.co.uk. And if you want to follow along with the enterprises, so as I said, SheDot is um, the social enterprise that I lead. So that's just SheDot.co.uk. And I've actually recently co-founded an initiative to get more people from disadvantaged and minority backgrounds into Oxford University. So if anyone listening is a current or recent graduate and fancies being a mentor, or is thinking of applying to Oxford or know someone who is, then check us out. We're unipair.co.uk. But yeah, those are my handles. And please do feel free to, to drop me an email or a message. I'd love to speak to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of RocketPod. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joe as much as we did. So join us next week as we sit down with Matt Turner, entrepreneur, investor, patron and founder of The Creative Group. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Flexi. Check out the website at flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Download from the App Store and start managing your subscriptions today. Check us out on social media at WeAreRocketPod. And of course, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. We'll see you next time.